It's Wednesday, March the 16th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Lenehan. As Russia's brutal military assault on Ukraine enters its fourth week with little sign of a decisive outcome, the question of what an endgame for this conflict might look like is increasingly the subject of international debate, with much talk of whether it's possible to create an off-ramp from Vladimir Putin from an invasion which to most people, look strategically disastrous as well as morally reprehensible. Meanwhile, thousands continue to die in Mariupol, Kharkiv, Kiev and many other places. People are trapped in the country and millions more are fleeing for their lives. Um, a few months ago, we were joined by the former editor of the Financial Times, Lionel Barber, to discuss his memoir, The Powerful and the Damned, which touched on some of the geopolitical questions which form the backdrop to the current war and who is also one of the few Western journalists to have conducted an in-depth interview with Vladimir Putin in recent years. Last week, he wrote an article for The Spectator magazine titled What If Putin Hasn't Miscalculated But The West Has? Lionel, you're very welcome back. Thank you very much. Good to be back. I'll go to the piece you wrote in The Spectator in a little while. But first of all, I reread last night that lengthy interview that you did in, in 2019. I'm sure you've looked back at it over the years and more recently as well. First of all, the Vladimir Putin you met then, does he look very different from the Vladimir Putin we see now? He looks a lot puffier and older. I think what struck me about that meeting, and it was after midnight because he kept us waiting for three or four hours in the cabinet room in the um, in the Kremlin. And by the way, Hugh, the, um, the table was a lot shorter. Um, it was round. But the ch- he's a really chilling figure. I mean, he'll look right through you. And there were certain things we can talk about that, which he said about his willingness to take risk, his kind of contempt for human life, which really came out, which which left a deep impression on me. Some people suggest that he's not rational. In fact, some people do question his frame of mind. And obviously, he's led this very isolated existence, even more isolated than heretofore over the last two years or so. There seems to be something about this 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 fear of COVID he has and all that weird stuff with the long the long tables and all that those kinds of things too. But the Putin that comes across in that interview and the Putin that we see now is rational. It's just a different kind of rational, I think, isn't it? Well it's cold blooded beyond belief. I mean if we just talk about how he he saw um the, the intervention in Syria, where he again created mayhem, massive civilian casualties, um, but at little economic cost, because this was essentially an aerial operation with some troops on the ground. I mean, the, the economic costs of this invasion in Ukraine um, are really heavy, and he's got unprecedented Western sanctions on the Russian economy and the campaign. Has been a disaster in the in the short in the in the opening phase. I mean, he clearly, and I, I certainly, I actually said uh, in the article the headline was slightly, you know, it certainly caught attention. But the the you know, I'm very clear. Putin did miscalculate. He miscalculated because he was over ambitious in what he thought he could achieve militarily in the first two weeks. It was like a special operation that the government would fold. He could install a puppet regime. And he completely underestimated the way the West would respond, particularly Europe. I mean, the the EU has turned from this sort of remote, incapacitated bureaucracy to a united front capable of imposing serious sanctions. It's, It's really amazing. And the movement in the German position is, again, 
um, really, really significant compared to the kind of accommodation of the Merkel years. We're in a different age. And I think Putin didn't recognize that. So that can be seen as a as a strategic failure on on his part, but it can also be seen as a uh, in in both cases. And I think this comes across in that twenty nineteen interview and in other things that he's that he said since, in even more extreme ways, like that essay which he wrote about the relationship between Ukraine and Russia a few months ago. His analysis of Ukraine, what Ukraine is, and what Ukrainian identity is, and therefore the likelihood of the kind of resistance which we're seeing was clearly wrong. And his analysis more broadly of the West, which he saw as weak and fragmented and unlikely to respond in a coherent way, was also wrong. And both of those mistakes seem to me to be perhaps, you know, based on, upon his own increased isolation and this autocracy he's created for himself. But also there is an ideology at play here. There is an anti-liberal anti-Western, imperial Russian notion, theory of the world, I suppose. Well, you've put this very well. And what I would add is, you know, and it came across in the interview in the Kremlin, the huge sense of grievance. Um, you know, we Russia has been put down. Russia has been exploited by the West uh, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, which was a tragedy, tragedy, as he said, for millions of Russians who were stranded in the old Soviet republics. Um, I think the isolation does count. Um, he, the circle around Putin has increasingly narrowed. And so he's only listening to the people who are basically saying, you know, um, telling him good news, if you like. Um, but I, th- I think there's something else, which is there's a paradox about Putin. Um, in the interview, he really shows utter contempt for the West. Essentially, it's decadent, liberal. They don't even teach um, proper education in schools. They're confused about sexual identity. Yes, he did say that. And yet, he's got this narrative of Western decline, but he's incredibly threatened by kind of democracy on his doorstep. And I was talking to a a former senior intelligence official just earlier this week, who said he, and it, I thought he put it very well, which is, you know, for Putin, the, the cold-blooded autocrat, seeing this popular, completely natural Democrat, the ex-TV comedian Zelensky, it must be really, really grating and, you know, annoying. So forget for a moment this this sense of, well, Ukraine belongs to Russia, Mother Russia. It's also something which is happening on his doorstep and he feels deeply threatened by it, his own personal rule. I suppose one of the many scary things about the situation we're in now, and it really is a, a terrifying situation in many ways, is it's really an open question about how he might react now to this changed and surprising environment in which he finds himself, where his his much vaunted modernization and improvement of Russian military forces has proved to be a bit of a paper tiger, really, where the Ukrainians are are resisting very well and where there's this huge economic pressure. And uh, I was talking the week before last to Bill Browder, who you'll know, who thinks a lot about how, the, how these things operate. And he says Putin doesn't back down, that it's not in his personality. He can't. It's just not possible for him to do that. And the question then that arises, which I suppose I said at the start here, is then how do we, and this may stick in some people's craws, but how do we help them to back down? Well, that's what I was sort of getting at in my Spectator article, which is, you know, it's it, he is definitely miscalculated, but 
he can't be seen to lose. Um, I mean, this is this is a really he's a cold blooded killer. Look at the tactics, the, the sort of medieval siege with modern weapons that is using against the major cities, including the Russian speaking ones in the east, like Kharkiv um, and Mariupol. Um, so what do we do? And I, I was essentially saying the West needs to have its eyes wide open. I mean, he will definitely double down. Now, whether he goes as far as um, using nuclear weapons or attacking a nuclear power station or p- producing a dirty bomb, we need to be really clear about where are we drawing lines, how much pressure are we going to exert, and what type of pressure. And, you know, be clear about, you know, if we're going to have a no-fly zone, then we are in conflict with Russia directly. Now, there may be other other forms of indirect pressure which can get him and push him to the negotiating table where you and I can talk about potential terms of a deal. But for the moment, I think the West, which has been remarkably united, needs to turn the tourniquet, the economic sanctions, really, really tight and fast. And if in the short term this means an oil and gas ban on exports and rationing, so be it. And secondly, we may need to to up the ante um, on uh, supplying aircraft indirectly, not through NATO, to Ukraine in self-defense. If this carries on and we see what we're seeing with the mass civilian casualties, but then we need to say, have eyes wide open. It's interesting, Tony Blair called for more ambiguity about potential military and uh, intervention rather than playing what Biden did last week, American President Biden, playing such a straight bat and saying, we will not get involved in this, we will not do that, we won't. This is a very negative way of doing it rather than introducing sort of proactive ambiguity to put try and um, put Putin off step rather than just reacting to what he's doing. And so then we find ourselves, I mean, there are, to an extent, talks or public statements about talks going on. And some of them on the surface, I think we should all take them with a great deal of scepticism, what's said, particularly at this point. But, I mean, they do offer slight signals that there is the potential for real negotiation on real issues. For example, uh, Volodymyr Zelensky only saying only yesterday that he didn't envisage Ukraine joining NATO. I think Boris Johnson backed that up. That'll come as no surprise to anybody who's been looking at that issue over the last few years. And I suppose the real problem with that is that's all very well, and that may form part of the pretense for the original military action. But it wasn't really the cause of the military action at all that was that was driving it. But I suppose it may offer part of a pretext, along with perhaps some measures in relation to Crimea and the Donbass, for Putin to be able to say that the so-called special military operation achieved its objectives? Well, I've never thought that NATO membership for Ukraine was a realistic option any time, certainly in the Putin era, um, and also Georgia. Um, This is just right up against Russia's border, and you know, Ukraine does have a special place. It's in that middle zone. It's been part of the sort of Slavophile, the Russian near abroad, as it's called. Now, if you apply, apply a, you know, a hundred percent test of all nations are completely sovereign; they can choose what they will. Which is, by the way, Zelensky's public position in the run-up to the the war. 
then you, you are in a quite tricky situation. Um, I think now um, it's clear that neutrality has to be part of the solution. Um, and it's interesting that the Kremlin said today that they could envisage EU membership for, um, or, or Ukraine could follow the Finnish-Swedish example. Now, Finland and Sweden are, Sweden is, is neutral. Finland is, is not part of NATO. Um, it has a special relationship with the Russians, but they're part of the EU. And I think a prospect, and I wrote this in The Spectator as part of a deal, could be that prospect of EU membership where Ukraine is not part of a military alliance, but it is part of the West in the sense of the EU. And I think that could be part of the deal. Now, if I've got some time here, I would turn to Crimea and the Eastern Republics um, or so-called so-called breakaway republics. I think Crimea is gone. I think it's 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 the base demand of of Putin and any Russian government to say, look, it 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 was it was handed over to Ukraine in 1954. Khrushchev made a mistake. It's Russian. It's Sevastopol. It's ours. And I think nobody nobody's seriously going to contest that. The issue is, are you going to have de facto partition? dismemberment on Putin's terms, where you have Crimea almost linked with other territory to those eastern republics at Donetsk and Luhansk? Or could you envisage something which is more on Zelensky's terms, which is a kind of Swiss-like confederation, Switzerland, by the way, being neutral, although it has, interestingly, come on board on sanctions, but where you have um, kind of cantons, republics, inside Ukraine with special um, protection for those e for the East. I mean, I don't know. This is for the um, Metternichs um, to work out. I mean, the, one of the potential problems with that is that perhaps the greatest contributor to a strengthened sense of Ukrainian nationalism has been Vladimir Putin through his actions over the last 10 years or so. And... Uh, it seems to me, looking from outside, that one of the reasons why the Minsk Accords never really went anywhere was because they implied a sort of a um, a sort of a veto on Ukrainian sovereignty from the from those parts of eastern Ukraine. And in fact, what you now have in the rest of Ukraine is a much more united, much more self confident sense of of Ukrainian identity, which encompasses both Russian speakers and Ukrainian speakers. And they won't want to go back to that sort of veto if it comes to discussing closer relationships with the EU. And the other thing that strikes me is a lot of analysts have said, have argued that because the NATO uh, offer was never really on the table, the real fear of Vladimir Putin was that a healthy, democratic member of the EU, uh, very culturally close to his own Russian society, would be sitting there as a reproach on his own borders. And that still is a, is a problem, isn't it, for him? What you've said at the beginning, Hugh, is, is very important, that Putin almost every action has a reaction, not just in Newtonian physics, but also in, in war and, and politics. And the way that Putin has treated the Russian population in the East, I mean, he's been shelling them. And now you've also seen sort of Stalin-era tactics of, of Ukrainian nationalists, Russian-speaking, being carted off and, and um, uh, a kind of quizlings. Um, what's the Russian for quizzling? I'm trying to remember. But, you know, having pliant, compliant, pliant people 
put in as mayors, etc. I just don't think this works. I, 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 what we've got to look at, if we're being optimistic, is something where, one, the serious reconstruction. I mean, Russian can't pay, pay reparations. They haven't got the money. The economy is being is tanking. Um, so one reconstruction, two, I kind of some kind of confederation, but not veto powers, not not going back to the sort of wishy washy um, Minsk protocols. That's gone. Um, and I, I I think you know a path to EU membership is also possible. And in this sense. This is where Zelensky has some cards and the West has some cards. If Putin is going to come to the peace table, it's not going to be, and it should not be, and must not be, a Carthaginian peace. Where does China then fit into all this? I mean, does it have any role as a potential broker between the two sides? Well, it has a role if it chooses. I mean, there are some Europeans I've spoken to who said we couldn't possibly have that. This would be utter humiliation for the EU. Um, that has a direct stake. But on the other hand, the EU is a, now a sort of party to this conflict. Um, the, the issue is where the Chinese stand. And at the moment, I would describe it, you know, the, the, the prominent views are twofold. One is um, the view that the West is out to stem, stop China's rise, contain China, and China is better off in an alliance or axis of autocracy with with Putin's Russia, and therefore it will side with Russia. But there's another side, a kind of semi-reformist, who say, well, actually, Putin is finished. Putin's the past. Look what he's done. Look at the chaos he's caused. He's not going to survive medium term anyway. So we're much better off. Um, we also don't want to be sanctioned. Um, so we side with him. So why not get involved on the sidelines? Maybe, maybe not as a, a kind of big public role as broker. But I fear, and again, I have no great sources on this, that this it's an awkward straddle that Xi Jinping in Beijing is, is uh, conducting. And he will probably just side more with Putin, but not maybe with active military support in a big way because they won't won't want to get involved but they're not going to help the west i think that's a mistake i think they should be on the right side of history but there we are there's been a lot of soul searching in the west over the last few weeks about the responsibility of political and indeed business leaders for the situation that we find ourselves in, uh, the various blind eyes that were turned to Russian criminality, Russian autocracy, crimes, not just in Russia itself, but in across Europe and in, uh, and in other countries as well. And it does beg the question of, even if we do stop the killing and arrive at some kind of modus vivendi in Ukraine itself, we're not going to be giving Roman Abramovich his football club back. We're not going to be returning to the status quo ante. The real moves in Germany away from reliance on or over-reliance on Russian energy, they're not going to stop either, are they? These relationships have changed forever. I think, Hugh, you made a, a really important point here because this is another um, way in which the West does have cards to play, has leverage in the peace talks. These sanctions have been imposed. 
we have to have kind of KPIs or if you like, or, you know, how is Putin's behavior? You know, we're not going to just lift these sanctions overnight. We will lift them in tune with one, a reasonable deal in, in Ukraine, but also attuned to Russian behavior, Putin, the behavior of the Russian regime. Because right now, as you say, it's a pariah. Now, I, I think I'd make a separate point if we just look backwards. Um, it took a very long time. I'm now talking about my own country, the UK, for British governments to wake up to what was going on. I mean, the, you were seeing assassinations on British soil. And the British government did next to nothing. It took the attempted assassination of uh, Sergei Skripal, the KGB double agent, for, for us to finally wake up and say, enough. Actually, Russia has been waging a hybrid war against the West for at least 10 years. And, you know, we, we just have done nothing. Instead, what we've been doing, and again, I speak more of Britain perhaps than other Western democracies, we've talked ourselves into a funk. We basically, and we take mad decisions. I knew I was going to mention Brexit at one point, but, you know, what an act of self-harm. But the Russians were desperate to, to detach the UK from the rest of the Europe. It took a huge pillar out of the Western alliance. Uh, I know we're in NATO, but we're not in the EU anymore. And that was in Russia's interest. There were conservative politicians cozying up to Russian interests, taking indirectly Russian money. And we just kind of turned a Nelsonian eye to the whole thing. And I'm sure all the Irish listeners and the, your international audience are familiar with Admiral Nelson, the one-eyed admiral who defeated the French at Trafalgar, and in one or two other places too. Indeed, but then the Nelsonian, uh, of course, we blew up his column in Dublin about 50 years ago, but uh, that, that's a story for another day. But I mean, that Nelsonian approach, Chris, one of the ways in which it manifested itself, I'd be interested to know what you think of this is, we've seen a lot of stories in recent days about the Lebedevs, the father and son, the father being a former KGB agent turned oligarch, the son being a playboy turned newspaper proprietor, and he still owns uh, the Evening Standard and the, the Independent and was ennobled by Boris Johnson. We we gather now against security advice. That sort of sums up the kind of thing you're talking about, doesn't it? Oh, completely. And I mean, I remember meeting Alexander uh, uh, Lebedev in a Moscow hotel. I hadn't been in Russia for um, more than 15 years. And I spent eight days there and interviewed Medvedev. Didn't see Putin that time and met a whole load of oligarchs. And then the last one was this um, man in who spoke perfect English, immaculately dressed with jeans and very, very expensive leather shoes, white. They were white leather shoes, the kind of thing that you wear, Hugh, all the time, I'm sure. Um, and I thought, this guy is KGB times 10. Um, and he had a stake in Aeroflot, the airline, you know, the airliner at that time. Um now, the son is completely different. He's a sort of slightly, um, you know, character out of a 19th century a Russian novel, um, quite gentle, quite cultured, you know, feels a little bit, um, 
you know, he's certainly not a newspaper proprietor like Tooth and Blood, um, but charming. Uh, you know, I, I think doesn't get into substance. He did ask me out to lunch. Am I allowed to tell you this? Um, and I, I remember going, having this lunch in Mayfair and him saying, you know, you've done a very good job at the Financial Times, created a new business model. Um, I've got, I'm, I'm wondering what I'm doing because I'm running the Evening Standard. And have you got any advice? And I said, well, I don't, you know, I can't give advice to anybody. You know, we're not a competitor. And and he said, well, my father's got one idea, which is to put more Russian news in. And I said, in London, you know, I'm not sure that's a good idea. And then I was, I was thinking, this guy's a bit of a fruitcake. And in fact, he then said, in a very kind of low-key way, I think I'm, what about making it a free newspaper? And I thought, maybe he's not so silly after all. Um, anyway, he threw good parties, as Boris Johnson knew. Um, but anyway, to return to the serious point, the security services had concerns about Lebedev. And, you know, were they playing a double game with the Russians? Were they feeding back stuff? And Boris Johnson just said, you know, treated him as just sort of a mate. And he went on to some pretty boozy parties at the villa in Umbria. Um, who knows what he said or did, but, you know, he just put himself in a slightly difficult position. But Lebedev wanted to be part of the British establishment. He was a newspaper owner. I'm now going to put the other case. If you look at all newspaper proprietors have been given peerages. So why not give it to Yevgeny? But I do think he was taking, um, if I may use a, a rather adult word, he was taking the P when he called himself the Lord of, you know, Lebedev of 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 Hampton and Siberia. I mean, you know, that's, that's, that's far too, too, that's five fingers to the British, actually. That does sound just like a satirical novel of the late 19th or early 20th century. Just the broader picture again on this. Some people have looked at what's happened over the last, the last few weeks and they have characterized it as the end of the post-Cold War period, the um, uh, the much misrepresented Francis Fukuyama's end of history, the supremacy of the liberal order, that this is all over now. And in fact, that we may, some suggest that we may be moving into a, a new period of direct contestation between liberal democracies on the one hand, uh, what's broadly called the West, but includes other countries such as Japan and South Korea, and the rising autocracies in the other, most important among them being not Russia, but China. Now, the last time we talked, we talked a lot about the Financial Times and its coverage of the process of, of globalisation and, and all of that. I mean, what do you make of that thesis that we're now moving into a new polarised world? I'm always suspicious when um, pundits, including myself, say with a straight face, well, Hugh, we're in a moment of transition um, because we're always in a moment of transition. It's, that's the life, it, your history. But there's a serious point which you're making here. Um, I think that the end of American hegemony, which is essentially the Fukuyama end of history, has been around, this is, this has been around for several years now because of the rise of China and also American exhaustion in foreign wars, the never ending wars. Um, I also think that, uh, the liberal West was being deeply challenged externally and internally 
I mean, I think we've exaggerated some of our problems. But if you think of the the populism, the political legacy and impact of the global financial crisis, if you look at the impact of immigration, these waves, and globalization in general being challenged, um, that's been true for several years. I mean, the financial crisis is now almost 15 years ago, but that we live with that legacy. We live with, you know, the, the, the challenges to globalization. Now, what this has done, I think, is crystallize more clearly two, two or three things. One, that the West really has to recognize, in it's demonstrated unity over Ukraine. It said, we're not prepared to go back to the 1930s. We need to do something. This man is unprovoked aggression. We must stand firm and act. Unbelievable transformation, as I said, of the EU. We need to work for next on that and strengthen our institutions and understand, too, that we are now moving towards, yeah, contested blocks. Um, I'd say Europe, America, Russia, and China, certainly around technology. I think you 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 really are seeing people saying we don't want part of that Western internet. You know, we we want to defend um, our own borders here. We're not having this free flowing world of globalization that we we saw, you know, around the turn of the century. So this is a big challenge. And the third ch- challenge is again around technology and te- technological innovation and the kind of race for domination of sophisticated. 5G, all this, all this stuff. Who is comes out on top, and who's who's going to be able to protect themselves against, um, you know, foreign interference? Th- this means that the West has to stay resilient, tight. It, it, it's a different world from 20 years ago. The Putin theory of the case seems to be a, a desire to return to some kind of a you mentioned Metternich earlier, a 19th century notion of. Um, multiple spheres of influence in various geographical parts of the world, and one of those would be, uh, you know, a, an imperial form of, of of Russia, I suppose. I mean, the other way of looking at it is, isn't it, is that actually what's happening right now in Ukraine reveals the the underlying deep weakness of Russia as a power in the world. It's the fact that its entire reliance on on energy and commodities for um, for revenue, the fact that its military isn't what it's cracked up to be. It's a declining power in in many ways and when it's forced to front up it falls down some people would say that the logic of that is ultimately going to be is that the result of this is going to fall more clearly within the chinese sphere of influence itself that you will end up with a with a more bipolar rather than multipolar system what what do you think of that well russia is not as somebody said uh, 30 years ago i remember that in washington up a volta with missiles um but 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 it does have a formidable nuclear arsenal, and that's what sets it apart. What you're describing, though, is some very, very serious in- problems in Russia. There's a very interesting article, which um, if your listeners didn't see it, I would highly recommend by Dominic Lawson in the Sunday Times newspaper, where he talked about Russia's demographic deficit, the demographic problem. Um, it, they're just... It's a declining population. By 2050, it could have, you know, barely 120 million people. And I think, by the way, that is one of the drivers for Putin. He's worried 
Um, that's why he's concerned about Russians abroad. You know, he's worried about the shrinking number of Russians in in, in Russia. But it's a huge it's a huge landmass. Remember, nine is it or eleven time zones? I'm struggling there. Um, you so I think it just doesn't disappear. What it might do, which you've alluded to, is sort of slowly come under the Chinese its own Chinese sort of sphere of influence. And we know there's a long land border, Siberia. We know there's natural resources there. And, you know, China may be staying apart because basically it's waiting for this decline. Interesting, by the way, in the san- when the sanctions came on, who were the first people to say we might look at investing because Shell's coming out, BP's coming out, uh, of the, in the Russian energy sector? Well, the answer is Chinese energy companies. So I, I do think, by the way, this is, again, a potential post-Putin play um, uh, for the West, which is, do you really, Russia, do you, you need to be careful about falling under the Chinese sway? They won't want to do that. Um, one of the problems that uh, we've had in, in the last few years is that, in a way, Western strategy has pushed perhaps Russia a bit closer to China than we would have liked. We need to move more a bit perhaps towards the Nixon playbook. My last question, it's interesting that you you mentioned a post-Putin world, because obviously there's a bit of, it seems to me, wishful thinking in some quarters that the the combined pressure of sanctions and and military failure uh, might might lead to cycling. Yeah, again, I'm not... uh, (laughs) I haven't spoken to the head of the KGB recently and asked him whether he was planning a putsch against Putin. But, I mean, I I just, again, warned against wishful thinking. But the more this looks like a terrible mistake, the more there may be some doubts about about Putin himself. Remember, he's coming up to 70 I'm not I, I I'm not saying he's ill. He doesn't look particularly healthy. And his behavior is a bit odd. I mean, that that was an extraordinary performance with where he humiliated his own national security team. In some ways, it wasn't a mark of strength, it was a mark of weakness that he felt it necessary to do that, um, in my view. However, if you're going to organize a putsch, you better have your people in play because, and Putin has, you know, he's KGB, he's been in power a long time, he knows where bodies are literally buried. Um, and, you know, it's a big move. It would be a big move by anybody. And his internal structures are are still fairly robust, aren't they? We're not talking about the kind of the decay and collapse that you saw in the final years of the Soviet Union. No, that, that, that's correct. But, it, you know, fast forward three years, and if there's still these, the sanctions are on, um, and you see the shock to the system, you know, stocks falling, the rubles just worth next to nothing. I mean, people may start asking questions. Remember, remember, in the interview in the Kremlin that we did, in that long piece in the FT, we did refer to his declining popularity. And Putin traditionally, or in, in so far, and remember, he's been around de facto ruler now for 20, almost 22 years. Um, you know, when you've been around that long, 
your decision making tends to you know be less straightforward um you know he he's revived his popularity by aggressive sort of nationalistic actions crimea seizure of crimea being one perhaps the most important it was wildly popular this war is not going to be wildly popular i mean look at the casualties they've taken apparently greater than in afghanistan certainly greater than the americans took in iraq traditionally you know the russians seem haven't really cared certainly the rulers but you know and and it's very interesting too the way he described he won't use the word war because of its connotations of suffering and casualties you know military technical measures as if it's some kind of medical procedure well that's not going to work the longer this goes on which again in my view points perhaps in the next 2 or 3 weeks to the opportunity perhaps for you know coming to the for serious peace talks and trying to work out a deal it's not going to be easy but i think there's some pressures serious pressures on putin short of regime change well, i hope you're right lana barber thanks very much indeed for joining us today Hugh, it's been an enormous pleasure and i've really enjoyed this uh, conversation it's a very interesting conversation thank you And that's it for today. Thanks very much to our producer, Jennifer Ryan, and our engineer, JJ Vernon. We're going to be back very soon. Do remember, though, that you can contact us with your views or your questions at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. Until the next time, goodbye and thanks very much for listening.